2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. There is so much going on in the world today. Welcome to our program. Tom Hartman here with you. I've got a, just an absolutely amazing, crazy alert for you. It's just like, how stupid can... It's the latest insanity from the Trump followers and just the crazies. You know, the Ron death sentence, or Ron DeSantis, in Texas, the all-Republican Texas Supreme Court, has said that the Republican governor, Greg Abbott's order that schools may not mandate masks is consistent with the Texas Constitution and it stands. And you've got some school districts, in uh, particularly in Dallas, saying, screw the governor, we're gonna mandate masks. And it's gonna get very weird. And red state after red state after red state, We are watching hospitals fill up, ICU units filling up, children's hospitals filling up. We've got our own humanitarian disaster happening here, right here in the United States, as a result of the Republican strategy of let's sow chaos to make Biden look bad and to hurt the economy. And they're killing their own people in the process. I really don't. I think they miscalculated. I don't think they thought that the COVID was going to be this bad, the Delta variant. So we've got that going on, too. Trying to make sense out of what happened with Afghanistan, how we got in there in the first place. You know, why wouldn't George Bush, he started out saying, give us bin Laden to to Afghanistan. They said, prove that he's behind 9-11. Bush said, screw that, I'm going to bomb you guys. They came back two weeks later after the bombing started. They came back and said, okay, you know, we're ready to give bin Laden to a third country. Bush said, nope, I want a war, and here we are. Here we are. What do we do with this? How do we understand this? I wrote an op-ed about mental illness, Donald Trump, and us as a society. And what got me started on this was this this, uh, reference that I keep running across to adrenochrome. Adrenochrome is a, I believe it's a breakdown product of adrenaline. It's uh, produced, you know, in in the body someplace. I I don't pretend to be any kind of expert on this. Um, But there is this theory on the hard right that, that is embraced by the QAnon and Trump followers that this is the compound that liberals and Hollywood elites are extracting from tortured children in order to shoot it up and get high. And yeah, the first time somebody called about this, it was probably six months ago. Somebody started talking about adrenochrome and I just hung up on them and moved on. And I, you know, I rang a bell. And I went back, it, back. You know, when I was a kid, I was actually 1971. I was 20 years old, um, and that was the year *Fear and Loathing* in Las Vegas was published by Hunter S. Thompson. And he, he, and Ernest Hemingway were at that at that time my two favorite authors. And, and and Fear and Loathing in, in Vegas was my favorite book. Uh, the movie, not so much, but the book was brilliant. And just the style of writing. I, I was in love with Hunter Thompson's style of writing. That and Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail the year later about the Nixon campaign. Um, but in any case, <laughs> in that book, his fat Samoan attorney, his sidekick, is uh, you know they're running out of hashish and they're running out of opium and his attorney says don't worry we you know go go take a, t- a taste of this stuff and he says it's adrenochrome you know and and he got it from some child murderer that he represented as a lawyer that was entirely fictional right I mean literally completely made up and yet there are now m- literally millions of Americans who believe this who have taken this and it's been incorporated almost as if it was like high satire into into the QAnon you know pro-trump conspiracy theory uh as as real this is this is shared psychosis is what it is and you know now now that was and, and in fact i mean you know one of um This is what uh, one of Trump's cultist followers, Liz Crokin, in one of her many videos, uh, she says, It's a drug that the elites love. It comes from children. It's extracted from the pituitary gland of tortured children. It's sold on the black market. It's the drug of the elites. It's their favorite drug. Right. And then, you know, a few weeks later, when Mick Mulvaney held a press conference when he was the Office of Management and Budget Director and used the phrase pizza, She goes off, President Trump and his staffers are constantly trolling the deep state. That's President Trump's way of letting you know that Pizzagate is real, it's not fake. He's constantly using their words against them and throwing it in their face and God bless him, it's amazing. Well, that was 2018. This week, Matthew Taylor Coleman, a guy who runs a Christian surf shop and uh, actually was a member of a Christian surfing organization, took his three-year-old son and his nine-month-old daughter from Southern California down into Mexico and with a spearfishing gun murdered them both. Stabbed each of them uh, more than a dozen times to death. Why? Well, because he had learned from the Trump QAnon conspiracy folks that his children had lizard DNA. And they, uh, this is a quote from federal officials. They said, uh, his children are going to grow into monsters so he had to kill them. It was the only course of action that would save the world. Those are his words. The University of Maryland's National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism notes that 68% of the open QAnon followers who were arrested at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and who had committed a crime before or after then, quote, have documented mental health concerns according to court records and other public sources. Their psychological issues include, quote, post-traumatic stress disorder, paranoid schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Remember the QAnon shaman, the guy with the big horns and the, and the, the painted bare chest? He's now pleading mental illness, as are two others who were, quote, found to be mentally unfit to stand trial and were transferred to mental health care facilities. Of the six women arrested on January 6th, who also committed crimes before or after the coup attempt. The researchers note, quote, all six have documented mental health concerns. Which shouldn't surprise us, Donald Trump himself has mental, well-documented mental health concerns. Dr. Bandy Lee wrote a book called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. It's literally 27 different experts talking about how dangerous Trump is because he's so mentally ill. Our buddy uh, Justin Frank, M.D., the psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at George Washington Medical School, uh, wrote a book called "Trump on the Couch" that is similarly alarming. Mary Trump, Donald's niece, who has a Ph.D. in psychology and is a clinical psychologist, you know, wrote an entire book about how he is mentally ill. He has a severe case of malignant narcissism. And one of the things we know, and Bandy Lee points this out, is that when malignant narcissists acquire positions of power or authority, it becomes contagious, essentially. Whether it's that they're bringing the narcissism out of the rest of us, you'll recall Dr. Frank once on this program, in fact one of the people commenting on my op-ed today, made this point. Dr. Frank said, you know, we all have a little sociopath and psychopath in us. It's part of the human condition usually we keep it under control. But it can be activated, it can be triggered, it can be brought out, and that's what Donald Trump is doing. And that's why you're seeing, for example, his followers going nuts on airplanes when they're asked to put their masks on. This is an exact quote from Dr. Lee when she was interviewed by Psychology Today about this. She said, when a highly symptomatic individual is placed in an influential position, that person's symptoms can spread through the population, through emotional bonds heightening existing pathologies and inducing delusions, paranoia, and a propensity for violence, even in previously healthy individuals. And sure enough, we've now got a half a dozen Republican governors who are passing laws that will force teachers and children to expose themselves to a deadly virus. You got Christy Nome up in uh, South Dakota inviting 750,000 largely unvaccinated, unmasked bikers to come to her state so that they can spread death and disease all over the United States just like they did a year ago. Half of the Republican members of the House of Representatives are refusing to say if they're vaccinated, although, you know, I mean, these people are not idiots. I realize, you know, Louis Gohmert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, you know, okay, so a few of them are idiots. But by and large, they're grifters. THESE ARE SMART PEOPLE. SO WHY ARE THEY REFUSING TO SAY IF THEY'RE VACCINATED? BECAUSE THEY'RE TRYING TO ENCOURAGE BEHAVIOR THAT'S GOING TO KILL PEOPLE. IT'LL DISRUPT OUR ECONOMY AND IT'LL HURT JOE BIDEN AND THE DEMOCRATS. THAT'S THEIR STRATEGY. THAT IS MENTAL ILLNESS ON DISPLAY. AND MEANWHILE WE'VE GOT THIS DELUSIONAL PILLOW SALESMAN WHO USED TO BE A CRACK COCAINE ADDICT. Running around talking about this democracy destroying conspiracy that the Senate in Arizona bought into and threw a bunch of money at and Republicans in a half a dozen other states are trying to replicate. So what do we do about this? It's not like the people, the 918 people who died at Jonestown signed up for suicide. They just fell under the spell of a malignant narcissist, Jim Jones. And you know, they got ground, they got wore down, or they became true believers. So how do we prevent that from happening to the rest of us? Well, Dr. Lee says the treatment is removal of exposure. That would be exposure to the pathogen, in this case, the psychological pathogen of Donald Trump. So media needs to stop giving any serious real-time coverage to him and his proclamations. And instead point out as often and as clearly as possible that this man is a criminal a hustler a con artist and genuinely damaged genuinely mentally ill we replace him with a new national father figure a person who has compassion and understanding and we've done that with joe biden and we have to break his bond with his followers by crushing his aura of invincibility and how do you do that You try him and convict him of just very ordinary crimes, public corruption, tax fraud, bank fraud, theft, rape. There's ample evidence of all of these things to send this man to prison, and you put him in jail. And if you don't, you'll recall, you know, Adolf Hitler, for example, although I hate Hitler comparisons because we're not talking about killing 6 million people here. Yet, we've only killed 600,000, but Adolf Hitler... Tried to overthrow the government of Bavaria and got put in prison for it and then made a comeback. It's the comeback that's so dangerous. And if we don't stop Trump now, he's going to continue with his attempt at a comeback. And if we want to save America, America must convict and imprison Donald Trump. Another question that I wanted to toss out to you. Have you noticed this? There is, seems to be this explosion of rudeness in our society. And it's even echoing down to the workplace. We're seeing in the marketplace where anti maskers and anti vaxxers are coming in and throwing hissy fits. And, you know, the the airlines are dealing with this constantly. You've got flight attendants who are being assaulted on a regular basis. They've stopped serving alcohol on a lot of flights. They're now begging the airports to stop serving people drinks before they get on the planes. And everybody's like, you know, what's going on? Why are these mask holes behaving like this? And, you know, in and, and the workplace, too. Well, there was a study that came out of Portland State University. And what they found is that uh, about workplace incivility, people behaving poorly in the workplace as they're coming back after a year of remote working. And what they're saying is that we spent a year talking to each other in ways that didn't involve human-to-human contact on social media and places like that. And social media actually encourages outrage And encourages anger i mean that's how they make their money is you know churning that kind of stuff and in many cases you could be anonymous on social media like on twitter and so people have been hiding behind their anonymity and they've been just venting at other human beings in ways that they would never normally do in the real world and now they're coming back into the real world and they're just bringing that new skill set as it were with them are you seeing this in your workplace are you seeing this in your life are you seeing this in your community And I think, by the way, Trump played a big role in this. Trump gave uh, the bullies of America permission to be bullies, gave the the xenophobes and the racists and the misogynists permission to be anti-woman, anti-minority, anti-immigrant. He modeled the behavior. And so, of course, we're seeing more of it. But this impact of social media and this impact of being relatively isolated for a year, I hadn't thought of that before, and this study highlights it. And I find it absolutely fascinating that people, you know, people you run into in the store are now talking to you the way that they would talk to you on Facebook or Twitter, particularly some of the sites like Twitter where you can be anonymous. And, uh, you know, it's not turning out well. It's not helping our society or our culture. I'm not sure what to do about it. I'm, I'm hopeful that as we get past this, you know, if we can get everybody vaccinated and get on the other side of this horrible pandemic, Maybe we can relearn our social skills? What think you? On the line with this is David Nodward. He is an investigative journalist with Daily Kos, the author of Red Pill, Blue Pill, How to Counteract the Conspiracy Theories That Are Killing Us. Another book, Alt America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump com or blogspot.com or at dailycos on Twitter. David, welcome to the program. Thank you for this extraordinary piece about the far-right vigilantes and their symbiotic relationship with basically, I believe this is the Border Patrol or ICE or both. Tell us about this.
3: Border vigilantes who are basically a patriot movement, Sort of thing have been around for quite a long time since around early 2000. A lot of folks remember, hopefully, the Minutemen, which was one of the sort of original versions of these. Very much also representatives of the Patriot movement. Even back in 2005, which is when the Minutemen were at their peak, it was fairly clear for those of us who were down on the border reporting on this that the Border Patrol had a very friendly relationship with these folks. They definitely looked the other way whenever they were doing their thing. We're all too happy to have them turn in immigrants for them to pick up and haul off to the cooler. But now it's really become kind of explicit, and this is something that actually Southern Poverty Law Center uncovered. Freddie Cruz, their reporter, did an excellent piece really showing how the border patrol just explicitly has a relationship with these guys, and they are very friendly. Even though some of them, a lot of them, like the guys in uh, near El Paso on the New Mexico border last year, who were pulling aside immigrants and you know detaining them, wound up in prison because they were toting weapons and representing themselves as border patrolmen.
2: Now, if you read any history of the United States from the failure of Reconstruction with the election of 1876 right up to the 1960s, what you find is that in many parts of the country, particularly in the South, there was a symbiotic relationship between Klan members and local police. And very often what happened was the Klan members would do the things that the police could not do under cover of law. They would harass people. They would torture people. They would kill people. They would terrorize people and then the police would come in and kind of clean up after the fact and provide a legal patina to it and maybe even cover it up. This is the main reason why historically in America we have looked askance, shall we say. We we have viewed poorly professional police agencies aligning themselves with unprofessional civilian paramilitary groups. Is that same kind of dynamic what's happening down at the border?
3: Well, it's happening not just at the border, of course, but I, I think in police departments across the nation, Proud Boys and these far-right street brawlers, police are very friendly. But yeah, the Border Patrol in particular has become fundamentally a rogue, out-of-control law enforcement agency. They are you know, ridiculously overfunded, ridiculously overstaffed, and they have a huge amount of power. And basically, they feel a great amount of impunity. This Border Patrol also is very, very closely aligned with Donald Trump. The Border Patrol Union was rabidly pro-Trump. I'm almost surprised they haven't taken to Claiming that you know Biden uh, cheated to win the election, they of course immediately jumped on Joe Biden as president and claimed that they were part of the you know faction that was claiming that Biden was messing up on the border and was you know creating a crisis on the border, which of course was actually ridiculously overrated.
2: Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but my recollection is that when Trump sent federal troops into Portland. Also, you know, some of the stuff around Washington, D.C., like, you know, clearing Lafayette Square, that he was using Border Patrol agents basically as his own private shock stormtroopers, his own little SS cadre. Am I misremembering that?
3: There are actually private contractors for the DHS, which of course CBP is part of. Hmm. They had traditionally done the contract work with Border Patrol,
2: yeah. Is the Biden administration taking any of this seriously, or are they just hands off on this?
3: Right now it's hard to tell. I mean, you know, supposedly there's this initiative underway to weed the extremists out of the ranks of law enforcement, both in the the federal level and in the military, right? Mm -hmm. There's been a tremendous amount of pushback on it, a lot of claims that they are making politically biased stuff. The problem is that they, you know, nobody wants to really cuss up to the real dynamic that's going on here, which is that so many of these border patrolmen as well as I think so many policemen have become themselves politicized over the last 10 years. And not just politicized but radicalized. A lot of them believe these right wing conspiracy theories. A lot of them believe Donald Trump's disinformation. In law enforcement it's really a problem because, you know, you've got at least half of the population that they are fundamentally biased against.
2: Yeah. Sheriff Mack used to come on this. Richard Mack used to come on our program oh, yeah, I know years ago. He was one of the Oath Keepers. He was one of the one of the big guys in the Oath Keepers, and they would talk about, you know, we don't recognize the federal government, blah blah, blah. although we're keeping yeah. the oath, you know. Our, but, but he described to us a decade ago on this program in detail how they were infiltrating police departments all over the United States and other, you know, military organizations, the Border Patrol, right. the various state militias, you know, the it kind of created a perfect storm when Trump came into office. Is there anything that individual citizens, you know, the people who are listening or watching this program right now can do to make their voices heard about their disgust of about this affiliation between right wing white supremacist paramilitary yeah. groups and the Border Patrol?
3: Well, I, I will say that there is a ridiculous amount of tolerance in the sort of in the voting public for sheriffs who are CSPOA members, so that's Richard Mack's organization, the Mm -hmm. Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. Yeah, there's a ridiculous amount of tolerance for it. It's like people just go kind of shrug and say, oh, you know, it's constitutional, it's all wrapped in a flag, must be okay, Right. right? But that's, it's not okay. CSPOA is an extremely radical organization that fundamentally tells sheriffs that their laws unto themselves.
2: I know, it's been a long time since we had Richard on because it just, it was over the top. government, yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. And they, well, and, and of course the Oath Keepers and, you know, CSPOA philosophy is what the Oath Keepers use. Of course, that's Stuart Rhodes' organization. Right. And as we know, the Oath Keepers played a central role in the January 6th insurrection. Right. And Stuart Rhodes is very much a target of federal prosecutors right now, I think.
2: Yeah. Are there any federal prosecutors who are looking at this thing, you know, at this uh, this association going on down at the border?
3: No, I don't think there is. That's why I think, hey, watch reporting is so valuable, yeah, uh, because they really substantiated what we've long suspected, yeah, that you know there was this cozy relationship going on, and now it, it just seems like post Trump. Or even during the Trump years, everything just went mask off. Everybody's just said, "Oh, I don't have to. I don't have to put up the pretense of plausible deniability anymore." You know, uh, right. we we'll just go ahead and and say, "Yeah, we love we love the border militias, you know, border vigilantes. They're great. They're our friends." that's a, pretty much how they treat
2: you. We have a lot of work to do. David Neuert, DailyCose.com, D-N-E-I-W-E-R-T.blogspot.com, Twitter, David Nywert, and at uh, Daily Coase as well. Also, your book, Alt America and Red Pill, Blue Pill. Great work. Thank you so much. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations on multiple systems on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Randy in Iowa, Iowa. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind today? The
5: implementation, and I just want to touch this and set it aside, on what's going on in Afghanistan and border our mistakes on the Biden administration, I believe, to the point he may have made the right decision, but when I'm looking at it, as of all the debt from that it was accrued from, it would have been from 2001 on, uh, July of 2001 on, that went on the credit card, all of that infrastructure over there, electronics, concrete for runways, all the military items, yeah, it was all borrowed. When you borrow $30,000 on a vehicle and you look at it and go, well, this isn't really what I want, I want something else, do you just trash it and walk away from your investment? Or do you look at it, from including some humanitarian points, where... We had an open society where people were actually civilized and who wanted to grow and who wanted to build a better society, but they were undermined and kneecapped. The military was undermined and kneecapped by Trump's haphazard involvement back in 2019. It was destined to fail, but I hate to see all the good that we did just get flushed down the toilet while we're still trying to pay it off. Yeah. And uh, that's my point, sir.
2: Um, Well, you made it very well, Randy. The next conversation we need to have after this current hysteria ends is what do we do going forward? Uh, Do we exercise soft power or do we just turn Afghanistan over to China? China has already, it's in the news, it was in the Financial Times today china is already making overtures to the taliban saying hey you know we're around we can help out you want to rebuild your country we can help you with that randy thank you uh emmett in missoula montana hey emmett what's on your mind today
6: oh thanks for taking my call well um i've been watching with interest you know it's a fascinating discussion this doesn't surprise me either but it should have just to start out i'm not democrat or republican i'm an independent voter and from this conversation that we're having, it looks like there have been mistakes made with the, by the Biden administration and the Trump administration. But I've often thought, what would I do if this was an Emmett administration? What would I do? What would you do? You know, this war has gone on for so long. I would have wanted to pull out as well, and I would have pulled out as well myself. I would have had talked to my advisors, my military advisors and said, "We've trained the Afghan army. Can't they stand on their own two feet? We can't be the policemen of the world?" And I probably would have pulled out, and it would have, might have been the same thing. Everyone makes mistakes. If, you ha- if this was your administration, you would have made mistakes if this had been my administration. We, we
2: never would have should made- have been there in the first place, Emmett. That was my, you know, the, right. the, the whole point of, of my rant today and of the op-ed that I published, you know, that was titled, When Are We Going to Stop Letting Presidents Lie Us Into Wars, Yeah, uh, is that, you know, we shouldn't have been there in the first place.
6: That makes so much sense. Spot on.
2: 9-11 was not Pearl Harbor. Things. You know, yeah. George W. Bush wanted it to be Pearl Harbor, and, and it, it you know, that in Iraq helped him get reelected in 2004, which was really, in my mind, what this was all about for him. But it was not Pearl Harbor. Afghanistan yeah. did not take those towers down. It was a guy named Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who was running that operation. It was funded by a multimillionaire, a Saudi multimillionaire by the name of Osama bin Laden.
6: This was a guerrilla warfare with the Afghans because they know that that terrain, the mountains. Well, it's not just guerrilla warfare.
2: That's what happens when you have occupations. This was the complaint exactly. the British had about the American patriots, whatever you call it. They called us terrorists. You know, exactly. because we were shooting from behind trees. You know, we wouldn't march in line in formation. People who are occupied are going to do whatever they can to get the occupiers the hell out of their country. And that's yeah. been going on for 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq, by the way. And 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 I'm telling you, there's a reckoning coming with Iraq as well. But, Emmett, I got to run. I'm sorry. But, you know, your point was well made. We're just trying to make some sense out of all this stuff and have a clear-eyed understanding of it with a little less partisan filter. Sabrina in Syracuse, New York. Hey, Sabrina, what's on your mind today?
7: I heard people talking about you were discussing mental illness and all that. Mm-hmm. I have um, bipolar, actually schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type. It's a uh, uh, bipolar with uh, psychotic traits at times. I know what it is. But uh, but I'm very sane. I don't um, I don't believe that. Uh, he was mentioning the, uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, he actually gets excited and starts talking. He reads a lot. He's got a lot of – he does not have dementia. Uh, he does have a stutter, though, but we knew that before. Yeah. Uh, people thinking that uh, Democrats are drinking baby's blood or something. I'm like, what, do you really believe that? Um, Pizzagate, there's no basement. Um, There's I several million that.
2: Americans though who believe this stuff, Sabrina. And I mean, you know, a guy showed up at that at that uh, what is it called, Comet Pizza? I think at that store, which you're right, it has no basement. Looking for the kids in the basement, shot a gun, shot a you know his rifle into the ceiling. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, people are taking this stuff seriously. This this is, you know, sadly, and I and I think that uh, Dr. Frank was right that we all have inside us the ability to 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 be pushed beyond our limits, and we all have within us a little bit of Um, you know probably most forms of quote mental illness and and Donald Trump seems to be bringing it out in people in ways that are I think dangerous for society frankly
7: Mm, true true but uh, I think uh, if I hear something I'm like okay how like there was a uh, a meme that said that James Doohan you know the guy who played Scotty on Star Trek uh, was uh, in D-Day And I'm like, he is not that old, so no, he did not. But if you you use a little bit of logic here and there, you're like, okay, let me break this down and see if it actually is the case.
2: Yeah, yeah, excellent idea, Sabrina. Thank you very much. Scott in Westwood, Kansas. Hey, Scott, what's on your mind today?
4: Donald Trump was supposed to be reinstated according to the pillow mat.
2: Yeah, and and from the best I can see, you know, looking at all the news uh, pages, it didn't happen.
4: Yeah but i am curious what would happen if an election was legitimately stolen obviously this one wasn't would we would there be any way to like acknowledge that our current president is illegitimate and acknowledge that the legitimate president or is that just not possible with our system?
2: you know i made the argument in 2000 uh in 2000 that the supreme court stole the, the White House for George W. Bush. George W. Bush lost the popular vote by a half million votes. And it turned out when the newspaper consortium actually counted the vote in Florida that George Bush lost Florida too. So Al Gore really was the legitimate president. And, you know, a lot of us were making that point, but hey, the Supreme Court had spoken, and, uh, you know, we respect the rule of law, and the media was not going to go down that road. As particularly after 9-11, it was a month after nine eleven. It was in in, um, in November of two thousand and one that the newspaper consortium reported that, you know, by any, excuse me, by any of seven different standards, if all the votes were counted, Al Gore would have won Florida. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. nobody wanted to touch it. Nobody wanted to, to hurt George Bush in the middle of a national crisis. I get that. You know, the, the, yeah. uh, I think it was Schlesch, I forget his name, uh, Schlem, Schlemberger or whatever his name, you know, the former publisher of the New York Times. He actually apologized for that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think going forward, it's going to be a very different dynamic. Uh, and yeah. and, and I, I also, and you know, it's funny that they, somebody updated my Wikipedia page after uh, Trump's election to say in 2004 uh, where's the effect of I don't have it in front of me uh in 2004 Hartman argued that the election was stolen by by electronic machines and things uh, I had my actually my concern uh, just for the record was uh, twofold number one that uh Ken Blackwell who is the Secretary of State of Ohio had done a massive voter purge just before the election and it hit uh the the, the cities of the large black po- black populations hardest and so that i thought was problematic and then number 2 the the state of ohio if the news reports are accurate and i may be wrong on this and and the reports may be wrong um i, I to the best of my knowledge has never been thoroughly investigated but you know they had backed up their election systems to a server in kentucky if that's the case well you know but 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 my point is i you know nobody wanted to nibble on that one either and mm-hmm. uh, but i think going forward there's going to be a whole lot more attention paid to cons- to, to to people Maybe I mean maybe maybe it'll become really toxic to say the election was stolen from from me. Yeah, which might which might make it easier to steal an election. Yeah, I I know you said a
4: lot that Eisenhower was the last legitimate elected president.
2: Oh, I've been making that case for years, but that's yeah. I've seen your
4: show a lot, and I've seen you
2: make. Yeah, but that, that's based on, you know, I mean, stuff that's fairly easily documented. That I don't get into the John Kerry election. I mean, you can document the 2000 yeah. with George W. Bush. Um, he, and Jeb. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and Jeb and everything else. Uh, you can get into, you know, Reagan cutting a deal with the Iranians. That's a matter of the public record. Surprise. Right, the October surprise. You've got Nixon committing treason with South Vietnam, asking them not to go to the Paris peace talks. And blow up, you know, Humphrey and and LBJ. Wasn't that
4: another uh, October surprise?
2: Yeah, it would. It, it was. In fact, uh, you know, he, this is uh, Lyndon Johnson talking about this with the guy who was then the uh, Senate Majority Leader, Everett Dirksen, the head Ever Republican Dirksen? in the in the Senate.
8: Here's the latest latest uh, information we got. The agent says that uh, she's just they just talked to the boss in New Mexico. Uh-huh. And that he says that you must hold out. Just hold on until after the election. We know what Chu is saying to them out there. Yeah, we're pretty well informed on both ends. Now, I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign. That's right. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. Oh, I know.
2: I <laughs> know. But they, you know, Nixon pulled it off. It worked for him. Yeah. So, yeah. Scott, uh, you know, going forward, we'll see. Uh, thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it. Bill, in Richmond, Virginia, it says, you want to disagree with me about moderate Dems? What's that? Uh, yes, sir. I, I'll
8: tell you why, because I've thought this all along. Is uh, oh, there's been this comparison in the past to uh, of FDR and LBJ uh, over Biden or President Biden. Well, both of them had rather what I call massive mandates, uh, you know, he, uh, out uh, in Congress and also the popular vote.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And,
8: and I don't see President Biden, <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, you know, no one has ever, and it can't all be gender. You know, how gerrymandering, but it's a, it's a the
2: Gerrymandering helps. You've got about 20 state. seats in the in the House that would not be Republican if those states weren't gerrymandered. You know, you've got states like okay, North Carolina and available? Pennsylvania, that, but, then Wisconsin, that overwhelmingly statewide vote for Democrats and vote for Democrats for the House. And yet in each one of those states, you've got uh, congressional delegations that are heavily weighted toward the Republicans.
8: Well, I've seen that door swing. In fact, I'm in Maryland right now, mm-hmm. which the Washington Post has already called the worst gerrymandered state in the country.
2: Yeah, so let's, end it.
8: Probably
2: let's end it right across already the
8: board. The, the point, well, oh, the point I'm trying to make is this, is that if you've got that narrow margin, and why can't these moderate Democrats have this position? They can. Uh, I heard they do. I disagree out, with got, them.
2: But, yeah, I think they are sellouts. Oh, well, who are they selling out to? They're selling out on behalf of the people who don't want their taxes raised to the tune of $3.5 trillion. Well, let's
8: see. One of them's in Oregon, and one of them's in Hawaii, and one of them's in Maine.
2: Yeah, now, geography doesn't know, make and, people immune to, to what, our, what we used to call bribes before the Supreme Court legalized it.
8: Well, okay, in that case, then, one of the things is you're talking about people that don't want their taxes raised. Well, I see that one of the things they're pending or working on it is to take the cap off on mortgage interest. Now, who's that going to benefit?
2: That's going to benefit anybody who has over $10,000 in state, uh, you know, in in, uh, uh, state taxes, basically. Um, the median value of a home here in Portland, Oregon, for example, is around $470,000. Um, so you know that's that's roughly for you know property tax-wise, that's between six and ten thousand dollars right there for most people. You know, for your your median value home in Portland. And what Trump did is he set it up so that, and that's true. Of, by the way, most of your larger cities, which is mostly in your blue states that, you know, your home values are higher than they are in rural areas like Wyoming or, you know, West Texas or whatever. And as a result, people can't deduct from their federal taxes the taxes that they're paying to the state. And it was done specifically to screw the blue states. I mean, you know, they they the Republicans well, bragged how, um, about this.
8: Okay, okay, point well taken except for this, the third highest property tax state in the country is Texas. Because, know, have roads to do right, Because they huh.
2: because they have no state income tax. The same thing was with, with the, the state of Washington. There's no state income tax, so they have to get the money someplace. So they get it out of property taxes. And you're right. There are you know the people who are living in Texas in you know homes that are worth more than five, six hundred thousand bucks uh i'm guessing i I don't know where the tax you know i know where they work here in oregon i don't know texas but you know are are going to get screwed by this but those are the people who live in houston dallas and san antonio which are blue areas so the republicans are you know i think they're fine with it well well well, well, aside
8: with that point point, do you think that there's anything wrong with the standpoint except for this tax situation About the Democrats, but because the progressives basically have their agenda also that
2: they're pushing for. Sure. Yeah, everybody has their agenda. I, You know, what I'm saying, I'm speaking specifically to this one particular issue, that these nine Democratic members of the House of Representatives just threw a monkey wrench into passing that $3.5 trillion bill, and I believe it's because it is funded by raising taxes on rich people. Patrick in East Lansing, Michigan. Patrick, you are on the air.
9: I just wanted to mention three things that I'm finding missing from the New York Times and Washington Post coverage. That is that, well, not the Washington Post, but the Vietnam syndrome. I know you know what that means, where we all said under Reagan that we gotta be ready to fight these imperial wars again. I'm wondering why we're not talking about the Afghan papers and the real Vietnam War syndrome because the afghan papers that the washington post published with craig whitlock getting all the interviews with the four hundred insiders that ran the war revealed that the people in the bush and the um... obama white house and even under trump understood that they could not win this war they did not have a plan to win this war and they quote doug lute who was the czar for the afghan war the three-star general in the white house under bush and obama and he said, we were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing.
2: Yes, And then
9: it goes, on to, it goes on to say that they developed a plan to deliberately and persistently lie to the American people. And it chronicles all of the lies. Now, this came out in 2019. The book with all the transcripts is going to be released on August 31st. Why isn't this being covered? And I'm just asking that question because eighty percent of americans supported the afghan war and don't we have to conclude that they supported it because they were being systematically lied to and isn't bush's uh... biden surprise over the collapse of the afghan army just the collapse of those lies
2: i agree with you and i think it needs more coverage and we were within six months of our being in afghanistan if i'm reading that those notes correctly was certainly within a year the bush administration the bush cheney administration knew That there was no way to quote win Afghanistan and they lied about it for the next seven years and then the Obama administration ignored that and basically lied to the American people for eight years because they didn't you know Obama didn't want to have what's happening right now to Biden happening on his watch even in his second term and then the Trump administration not only lied about it but made the situation far worse by cutting the Afghan government out of the loop and negotiating directly with the leader of the taliban who he had ordered pakistan to leave out to let out of prison um, who just by the way just arrived in afghanistan to claim his country back um, and uh, so yeah we've, we have been lied to about this literally from the beginning i mean in the beginning bush said oh we're gonna we're gonna take down the afghan government because you know they they're harboring bin laden and they know what happened and they had some role in 9 11. And uh, it turns out that at the time, bin Laden was in Pakistan getting dialysis, number one. Number two, the, the, the 9-11 plan was not hatched in Afghanistan. It was, you know, bin Laden wrote the checks, and he was probably in Afghanistan at that time. But, but uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was doing his work in Peshawar in, in Pakistan, which is where we finally caught him, by the way. Um, and, and in uh, Germany, in Hamburg, Germany. And then, you know, he, he and uh, Mohammed Atta, made the final plans in Venice, Florida. And this is all a matter of public record. Um, and, and, but, the, you know, uh, the Bush administration lied us into Afghanistan. So anyway, your final point, Patrick.
9: The second part is about the cost of this war. And the lead is from NBC News reporting and some others who have said correctly that we spent more on the Afghan war than we spent to rebuild Europe under the Marshall Plan after World War II. Correct. So I tracked this down and I read the Special Inspector General of the Afghan Reconstruction's report, a guy named Popko, Sopko, S-O-P-K-O, and you know he said that there's no accounting of this war expenditure that the military keeps saying 88 billion it's really 113 billion according to him but then I looked at the Brown cost of war project, and they have put together a number that the U.S. government has not disputed. Initially, they did dispute it for five years. Now they're not disputing it. And Trump and Biden picked up this number saying we spent over a trillion. Well, they put the number at the cost of war project at $934 billion which was Department of Defense, State Department, USAID, but excludes the CIA and the Department of Veteran Affairs. Biden finally gave up the ghost and said it's over a trillion. Yeah. So my question is, why aren't we talking about this? Because that's why we didn't rebuild water systems and highways and schools. That's why we don't have the good things in this country. And nobody mentions the 70,000 Afghan and Pakistani civilians killed as if they don't exist and these places are unpeopled that we've invaded. They, they talk about 2,400 U.S. US soldiers died, but they don't talk about 20,589 wounded. Right. And the 775,000 soldiers that went to Afghanistan for the U.S. are all suffering some measure of trauma. So how do we count the loss? And why aren't we counting the loss and learning the lessons?
2: And by the way, this is ongoing in Iraq. Right? Iraq oh,
9: on down. Iraq, if I, can just, if I can just say, my teacher in college was Larry Lindsay, who was Bush's economic advisor. He put a $200 billion cost on the Iraq war in, in the first 18 months. And uh, Secretary of State Rumsfeld said, oh no, it's really only 50000000000 billion. You're out. And they kicked him out. They fired him. Right. Well, the real number was at the lowest number, 280. Um, billion for Iraq, and this was U- the budget office, the Congressional right. Budget Office, and the U.S. GAO. And this was in year three. And then Stiglitz wrote his thing saying, no, the lowest number is $500 billion. And then Stiglitz wrote a book when we got to year seven saying it's nowhere less than a $3 trillion war. Yeah. So where do we get the money for this?
2: Yeah, I'm seeing estimates that on these two wars, we have spent somewhere between 3 and $5 trillion. And depending on whose numbers and you're using we- and how you're defining it. And can uh, imagine what we could have done between with between three and five trillion dollars. I mean, that's that's this entire kind of Green New Deal thing that the, the, the Democrats are talking about passing through reconciliation. It could have thank ended all student debt in the United States. Thank you, Patrick. It could have ended all student debt in the United States. It could have ended all medical debt. We have 500,000 families who go bankrupt because somebody got sick in the United States. We're the only do- developed country in the world that does that. Why aren't we, you know, why aren't we talking about the cost of this? Not just the human cost, but the financial cost as well. The only people who benefited are the defense contractors. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit
10: TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
2: I mean, if you had stock in Halliburton or Raytheon, you're sitting pretty, right, for the last 20 years. But everybody else, no, not so much.
0: As you write your life story, you're far from finished. dot edu slash podcast
2: celia in santa monica hey celia what's up thanks for listening to kpfk
11: just responding to a caller from yesterday who said that the republicans have a stronger message to activate their base and the democrats are behind on this I was just in a training to go out and um, canvas and make phone calls in behalf of Governor Newsom,
4: mm-hmm.
11: to uh, say urging people to say no on the recall. They started that training session out with a slide presentation that just knocked my socks off. They uh, went back and traced with the nice media slides and all the, the uh, fact that uh, racist and supremacist strands that have been in our uh, history from the founding and they had five little phrases that they said here are the euphemisms for it. They started out by saying slavery is a positive good, then it was the lost cause, then it was voter states' rights, then birtherism, and now we have the big lie. <laughs> oh.
10: So,
2: wow. Yeah, and the, the positive, positive uh, good, by the way, was John C. Calhoun. That was the argument he made on the floor of the Senate uh, in defense right. of slavery and in defense of the filibuster. <laughs>
11: So then they went all positive, training us the rest of the evening. But they started out with that one. And, man, we were paying attention after that.
2: <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Celia, so that's what you called about? You wanted to share that with us? Yes, that. Yeah. Thank you very much. That, 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 was, uh, that was brilliant. I appreciate it. David in Los Angeles. Hey, David, what's on your mind today?
12: Well, this is kind of ironic because I wanted to talk about the roots of evangelicalism. I got this from uh, the uh, American Theocracy, the section about uh, religion by uh, Kevin Phillips, and it's very interesting because the playbook, I'll get you, uh, basically the evangelical evangelical playbook after the war, or during actually the last two years of the Civil War, was set up by the ministers who realized that they were going to lose, so they started framing it in biblical terms and you know they were
2: baptized so so david forgive the interruption but i'm looking at the clock i've got 30 seconds what do we do about this
12: well i think i i, I can't explain it as well but i think people should realize that if they still if they call it about the backward glance the lost cog all of these things date back to that time that was the original you know
2: start of the evangelical yeah. movement so it's the same playbook Oh, interesting I think the modern evangelical so I, movement it certainly was the you know the Southern Baptist or I actually I shouldn't say certainly I'm no authority on the Southern Baptist but my recollection is but David thank okay. you for the call uh, yeah this is this is serious stuff it's and and slavery I mean you know white people got addicted to free labor from black people and for 300 years had free labor from black people and then for another hundred years had pretty much free labor from black people and uh, you know there's there's no shortage of white people who would like to have that back sadly we'll be back ronnie in orange county california hey, ronnie what's up
10: orange county california we've been blue for the last two cycles and of course everybody knows that we are uh looking at fighting the uh removal of our duly elected governor uh, and uh hopefully orange county remains blue for the third election cycle yeah
2: well let's hope enough people show up i mean if, if Californians show up in the same numbers that they do for a regular election um gavin newsom is safe but uh, that's typically not what happens in special elections
10: Yes, and thank you for uh, uh, telling everybody about Elizabeth Warren uh, because she's throwing a lot of money into California, and I'm seeing ads. Normally, California doesn't see ads because Mm -hmm. the election is already settled in the South, and you know the Mm -hmm. way the election runs from the east to the west. But thank you for alerting us. But
2: Ronnie, you wanted—I'm looking at the clock here. We got about a minute. You wanted to mention Barbara Lee? I think that she deserves a lot of credit right now.
10: Cheers. Uh, I spent eight years in the Air Force in England, so I love that English voice as well. Uh, Barbara Lee, uh, this goes to the top of your show when you ask, how do we stop stupid wars? And it is supporting people like Barbara Lee, who was uh, dealing with a big lie. Now, we talk about the big lie today, but she was definitely dealing with a big lie. Wouldn't you agree?
2: She was the only person in the House of Representatives who voted no. Now, what I don't remember is if that was Afghanistan or Iraq or both. Do you?
10: Actually, I believe she voted for Iraq. Uh, OK, because remember, uh, uh, Afghanistan was a second thought because uh, you had uh, mentioned that earlier. You weren't sure which way we went first. Uh, of course, you don't do know that we did go Iraq first. No, and no. That we was went into the Afghanistan
2: oil. in uh, October of 2001. And we went into Iraq in the spring of 2003.
10: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Af- Af- Afghanistan was secret troops. We went full-blown war in Iraq. Uh,
2: uh, no, I'm talking about a full-blown war. That was that was just a month after 9/11. That was that was Bush. True enough. That was Bush going, uh, you know, beating his chest and saying, "I'm getting revenge." Roger that. and and, Roger and that. this was not an act of war by Afghanistan. This was a crime by a criminal organization that was being run by Osama bin Laden and you know he should have been he should have been in in uh, in a court of law and in a prison and uh, you know but but that's again hindsight is always twenty twenty. 20. ronnie thank you for the call we'll be back we'll continue our conversation actually uh, i we've i have no guests for the three hours today i just wanted to discuss this with you we'll continue processing this and our thoughts on it um there's like so many levels to this There's, you know, the screw up around getting getting people out that have worked with us and and the multiple forces, the cross currents around that. There's being lied into wars. There's what was 9-11 after all? Was it an act of war? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Pat in Seattle. Pat, you are on the air. What's up?
1: Let's say the Democrats in the fall wake up and realize they need to eliminate the filibuster. I'm going to talk fast. Which, technically and legally, they can, I think, because it's not in the Constitution. Okay. Then we have these seven rogue states that have passed the draconian voter suppression laws, you know, basically from Florida to Texas. How would the uh, our federal government actually enforce vote for the people if people like uh, Abbott and DeSantos said, too bad. I mean, I think they have gone so, like, over the top, that mm-hmm. even if we pass vote for the people, get rid of the filibuster and pass that, what do you visualize as a scenario that would fall, happen, if that if we got rid of the filibuster and we and our federal government did pass vote for the people? Because in some ways, this is kind of a confrontation between federal government and the state Yeah. on some level. Yeah, the, the... So I'll take my... Sure. There's the there's air. a bunch
2: of moving pieces to this, Pat. Uh, the first is that you know the Constitution is very clear that the federal government has supremacy over state governments when it comes to defining federal law. And uh, Article One, Chapter Four of the Constitution says that while uh, the states shall determine the time and, and manner of uh, conducting elections, federal law can supersede the states. So it just explicitly says that Congress may, at the time of their, oh. at any time of their choosing, change those laws. So that's the good news. Yeah. The bad news is that this will almost certainly go to the Supreme Court, where we now have six right wing cranks. And uh, I don't know if the ex post facto uh, law prohibition would apply here. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't. I think that that has to do with criminal law. And this would be a change in civil law. But uh, it's illegal to pass a law that makes things retroactively illegal. I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm not an attorney, so I, I, I just, you know, this is, this is one area where I really don't know. But um, my guess is that the biggest challenge is just going to be the Supreme Court deciding that uh, they're going to go along with it. And uh, well, the biggest challenge, of course, is going get, to be getting it passed. And you're right, the, the filibuster can be taken down because it's in the Senate rules which can be changed with 51 votes rather than in the mm-hmm. Constitution at, or at law. Uh, it's not, there's no mm-hmm. law about the filibuster. So, that, mm-hmm. did I answer your question? But I
1: just see the Santos and Abbott and that kind of mentality, you know, just saying, uh, well, you know, you can't just do that to the filibuster and we're not going to, you know, and it w- then it would go to the Supreme Court. That's right. It ha- Would it be able to get to the Supreme Court quickly? I've heard people say that there would not be enough time, actually.
2: Well, that's a great question because somebody is going to ask for a a, a court injunction, a restraining order, essentially, preventing either the enforcement of the new law, in other words, so that the states can go ahead with voter suppression in 2022, um, Mm -hmm. or the enforcement of that law. And Mm -hmm. that's going to be, you know, and the Supreme Court will rule on that very quickly. And that, you know, and that will determine what the rules of the 2022 election are going to be. It's going to be dicey. It's going to be very, very dicey. The Republicans are hanging on by a thread. Pat, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. (laughs) Time for a crazy alert. People are worried about The contamination of the blood supply. Oh, no. Are we going to turn into lizard people? (laughs) With nearly 60 percent. This is from Kaiser Health News. With nearly 60 percent of the eligible U.S. population fully vaccinated, most of the nation's blood supply is now coming from people who've been vaccinated, inoculated, which has led some patients who are skeptical of the shots to demand transfusions only from the unvaccinated. Honest to God. Julie Katz Karp, who is uh, with the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia, said, We are definitely aware of patients who have refused blood products from vaccinated donors. Emily Osment, American Red Cross spokesperson, says that her organization, the Red Cross, has fielded questions from clients, worried that vaccinated blood is going to be tainted. right. The latest crazy conspiracy theory. It is, as I said, it is crazy. Uh, But here we are. I mean, you know, it's America and Facebook and all that kind of stuff.
10: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.